Welcome to the Look It's Rock and Roll podcast. I'm your host, Julian Gill. Today, I've got a special guest, an author with a new book, Tim Durling, author of Unspooled, An Adventure in Eight Tracks. Or is it An Adventure in Eight Tracks, Unspooled? Which way around is the proper title? Uh, Unspooled is first. Okay, there we go. It's a 193-page full-color book. Uh, Where is it available from before we get started about what it's about? Well, I'm just selling it myself, so if somebody's interested, uh, send me an email at timsvinylconfessions, all one word, dot com, or they could message me on Facebook um, under Tim's Vinyl Confessions, or on Instagram, or on Twitter, and uh, we'll get you set up with it. And, and since you've mentioned Tim's Vinyl Confessions, some listeners may recognize your name from that show. Uh, and you've been podcasting since 2014, thereabouts. Uh, but for those who are unfamiliar, who is Tim Durling and what is Tim's Vinyl Confessions? Tim Durling is a hopeless music geek, Julian. Um, I, I've been a, you know, a, just a big collector of, of uh, all things music for, for many, many years. And uh, I started... The channel, the YouTube channel, Tim's Final Confessions in 2014, mostly as a way to show off um, my vinyl collection. It started with just simply vinyl. Then I ran out of bands, and then I started talking about CDs. Then I started talking about cassettes, and eventually it led to eight tracks. Eventually, it just led to talking about the bands that I love. And you know, if a new album comes out, I'll do a review episode. If I if I get to the occasional concert, uh, thing like that. You know, some of my co-hosts will do um, best albums by year. Those seem to be pretty popular ones. If uh, somebody goes on a road trip, we document those. So yeah, it's been it's been a great way to it's been a great way to you know make a lot of good friends out there in the like-minded you know the vinyl not just the vinyl community but the the music community at large. What's your most recent episode? Uh, most recent episode was a look at uh, top 10 albums from 1977. Ooh, that's and, a good uh, year. Yeah, Russian Sticks made it in. Uh, yeah, there was uh, so some Rush Sticks, uh, some album called Love Gun. Uh, oh, yeah, that one. Was, was on there, uh, you know, so, some Kansas, uh, Journey, um, Fleetwood Mac. Uh, yeah, it was it was a really good year, and it was hard to narrow down uh, but that's what makes it fun. It makes you it makes you work a little bit. We got a we got a very cool episode coming up. Uh, I'm not sure when this is going to read, but or air. But we've got a cool episode coming up with Andy Curran, um, originally of the band Coney Hatch, uh, currently in Envy of None with no, no less than Alex Lifeson of Rush, and uh, they they've just got a debut album that's about to drop. But we we do basically a, a Coney Hatch retrospective, which is a band I've always liked, sort of a an overlooked Canadian band from the '80s. There are so a lot of overlooked that. Canadian bands from the 80s. I mean, the mighty Lee Aaron never made it as big as she should have down here. Um, and, and then the, there, there were so many. So um, what led you down the path from, you know, pontificating about music on a podcast to becoming a published author? That's quite a massive step. But um, let's let's hit that part first. Well, it was sort of out of necessity because, uh, you know, I, I've heard other people say this. And, and by the way, the book we're talking about, this is it. Uh, to it, I can't take any credit for the design of the book. It's a gorgeously laid out book. 
Um, every page has like really eye-popping graphics. Basically, I wrote the book that I wanted to read that nobody else seemed to be writing. Um, I've, I've always been, um, well, like I said, I've always been a collector of music. It was never enough for me to just um, have one album by someone. If I liked a group, I had to find everything. I mean, I, I talk about this in the book, how it started back in 86, so I would have been 12 years old when an album called Slippery When Wet hit the airwaves, a song called You Give Love a Bad Name. Um, I, like so many other 12-year-old kids, was hooked instantly, but I remember getting the cassette of Slippery When Wet, looking inside of it, and it said, also available. Oh, this isn't their first album. They have two other albums. Well, I have to get those two. And I didn't know it at the time. I thought everybody did that. Not everybody did that. Not everybody combed through those liner notes like I did, like studying them, but I didn't know I was studying them. That's, you know, Doc McGee, uh, okay. Mark Weiss, Desmond Child, all these names were were going in, and it started right there and then. Um, and you know, after a few years, um, you know, I, I was but mainly I started out buying cassettes. Cassettes were my medium of choice for, you know, the first three or four years of me, you know, having you know allowance money to, and stuff to to buy music. And uh, you know, CDs hadn't quite come around. Nobody in my family had a CD player until the end of 1990. So I started to find the occasional record, which was a lot of fun because, as you know, a lot of older cassette tapes had zilch in them for credits, lyrics, you know, artwork, no, you know, back cover, things like that. I was always fascinated by finding out, you know, what was on the back cover of these things and what the lyrics actually were. Um, and eventually that led me to stumbling upon an eight track of an album I happened to like for a dollar at a flea market in 1990. And the 8-track was Journey's Escape album. And I didn't know I was starting an 8-track collection then. I remember 8-tracks from when I was a kid. But I never had, you know, I never had a collection of them. I had one. I had the Muppet movie soundtrack when I was five. And uh, by the time I started getting into music, I figured 8-tracks were years back in the rearview mirror as far as uh, music formats go. I came to find out I was wrong about that. But... Um, Eventually, I learned that the record clubs, Columbia House, RCA Music Service, manufactured 8-tracks much later than their retail cutoff, which was sometime around 1982. And I always wished that there was a book about it. And there never seemed to be. Nothing I looked online ever. There's books about 8-track collecting and things like that, but there was never one that concentrated on the 1980s. And a lot of people might be saying there weren't eight tracks in the 1980s. Yes, there were. There were a lot of them. Uh, and I always thought that it would be cool to have a reference book to see just how many albums were released on eight tracks, uh, eight track format by the record clubs. Um, so I'd had the idea in my head for a long, long time. And I happened to do an episode uh, of my show with Martin Popoff, uh, who I'd gotten to know. And, um, I wanted to know his experience, basically the format. When did you notice 8-tracks start to disappear from stores? Now, he couldn't, he was a little hazy on that, but the more I talked to him about the the concept of these uh, record club only 8-tracks or RCOs, we'll use that abbreviation, he said, you know, uh, someone should write a book on this. So I thought, okay, if Martin Popoff thinks that there's a book here and he's not going to write it, well, then I guess I'll have to. So I basically, I wrote the book put together the book that I always wanted to read. 
Um, I had no, I never imagined I'd ever have a book with my name on it. So um, if you're asking how I became, you know, an, a, an author, it still feels weird to say that it was quite by accident. That's probably the best way to become one by accident. And uh, what better person to suggest a topic than Martin Popoff? I mean, surprisingly, he hasn't, he's written about every other band on the planet over the last 50 years, and he hasn't written a book on eight tracks. Shame on you, Martin. Slapping. <laughs> um, well, he did provide the foreword. So in a way he did. Oh yeah. So who, who was your uh, graphic designer? Uh, who's responsible for this beauty? Okay. This is my, my good friend, Matthew Phillips. Uh, he has a company called Go North Design, and uh, you know, the work speaks for itself. And Matt work has worked tirelessly on this book. Um, he and I have been friends for over 30 years, and he just his eye for perfection is just un, unfailing. I mean, he would show me two or three. What do you think about this? What do you think about this? I'd say they all look good, man. I don't know. He'd never settle for just that looks okay. No, no, go with that. That works. He'd always find something better in it. And, um, you know, I had to take a lot of, uh, I didn't take all the pictures in this book. I did take a lot of them. Uh, any of them that have the blue, what looks like a blue uh, floor, that's our porch. And uh, I had to take a lot of versions of those. And Matt said, too much light, not enough light. Turn it this way, turn it that way. And, you know, and I'm like, <clears throat> but after a while, I'm like, okay, I see why you did that. It turned out better than I could have imagined. And yeah, his, his, his work is just, it's gorgeous in there. And, and, uh, you know, I'm hoping that people see that and, you know, he gets some work out of it because he, you know, he's been, he's been running his own company for a long, long time. And his, his work just, like I said, speaks for itself. The, the graphics just fly off the page, you know, color matching stuff. I never even think about, uh, but now that I look at it, I'm like, okay, that's why he was so concerned about, you know, there's too much red here. There's too much blue here. So yeah, I have to give him a lot of credit. I, in a lot of ways, I just typed out some stuff and he made it all happen, like put it together. Just it, it, I always kind of had an idea in my head how I wanted it to look. This surpassed that. Yeah, I, I will say I'm, I've, I've got one, but I've got a green screen. So if I hold anything up, it's not going to look right. We'll see if I, I, I can't see. I do have a book. I can see a bit um, of it. <laughs> yeah, it is absolutely beautiful. I'm very impressed by the layouts with the flow. And that's probably more important than how it looks is how it flows. It really does tell a story in those 193 pages. It's got some nice tangents as well that support it. But you originally started this as a Kickstarter project in September 2021. Was there any trepidation on your part of taking that path? And what were some of the reasons that you decided to go that route? Well, number one was financial. Um, you know, we needed to raise the money to get the book printed and laid out and, and, and have it exist in physical form. Um, it was really the only option we could think of, you know, was to have a crowdfunding um, thing. And it, you know, it was very successful. We far exceeded the, we put out a pretty modest goal, but we exceeded it. We far exceeded it. And, uh, you know, there are things that we would have done differently. Um, you know, I think that we would have you know, I hate to say it, I think we would have charged a little bit more because no money has been made from this uh, because it's all been eaten up in shipping. And I'm not <laughs> complaining about that. You know, as you know, that's part of the business, right? Um, you know, you try to you try to put it into the price. But yeah, with the Kickstarter campaign, we, we really went all out. We had bookmarks, we had tote bags made up, you know, we had posters. Um, and then uh, so 
that was a month long campaign. And there were probably about a, at least two dozen more people that were saying, hey, Tim, I'd like a book. I'd like a book. And I hated the idea of somebody wanting because I just figured, well, that would be it. But I hated the idea of somebody who actually wants the book and can't have it. So we kind of bit the bullet, um, spent a little bit more money, and we got a quantity of them printed up. And that's what I'm in the process of, of selling now is, uh, you know, we have a, a about 50, 50 plus soft covers. And as of this uh, recording, we've got about six hardcover editions left to sell. So the Kickstarter campaign just worked for us. We needed, you know, we needed the, the capital, if you like, to actually make it happen. And, you know, and, and for that, it was, I'd say it was a successful campaign. Yeah, just the idea of printing a 200-page book in color, in full, beautiful color, uh, makes me a little shaky, to be perfectly honest, from my experience. You, you know, there were a few proofs that came back that we had to send back and say, mm, you know, the red's eating up all the text. The, you know, it's not. Yeah, but you know, it, it came out. It came out looking, looking like it should. As anybody knows, that's ever done this. You, you can open up your file on the computer and it looks great. You need it to look that great on the printed page and it all depends on what you know how thick your paper is and there's so many factors that go into it or whether you when you send it you have to make sure that you know uh the corresponding page on the other side is the right page you know we had a few back and forth discussions like that and it's like well no that's not good because you've got like page 111 and then the next one is 114 or something like that so yeah there were a lot of nail-biting moments uh but um you know it's anything like this, you're, you're taking a chance. And it's was jumping into waters that we just knew absolutely nothing about. So, uh, and we, st- <laughs> in a lot of ways, I still don't know anything about it. We're just bumbling along here. But, you know, the feedback I've gotten from this has been overwhelmingly good. People are really enjoying it. And, you know, one of the, one of the other things that Martin brought to the book um, via suggestion was, um, you know, originally I just wanted to have a list. I wanted to have a year by year list of all of the known eight tracks to exist in the eighties. And, uh, he said, you should have some, some stories in there, some collector stories. And, and the more I thought about it, yeah, he's right. It would be kind of dry if it was just simply a list and who's going to buy that. Uh, and I wanted to make something that was for the general collector, which is what eventually, uh, led me to, reaching out and asking you if you'd be interested in contributing, which you did a very good chapter. And that's the, you know, that's the kiss connection right there because it was all, it's all about kiss collecting. And there's, as we know, there's nobody crazier than kiss collectors, right? You can see some of my, some of my stuff behind me. I don't have a lot, but uh, you know, we, we have to have things that aren't just musical, right? Oh, absolutely. And and that's one of the fun thing about the book is, you know, the, the number of kind of contribution features in there that makes it much more than a list. Uh, like you said, a list would be more than dry. It would be turgid. Um, yeah. and, and that's best left for Wikipedia. Um, yeah. Now, when I was growing up, obviously in Europe, we didn't really have eight tracks. I don't recall ever seeing one or ever seeing one even at a flea market or in a, in a secondhand store. It's a very North American phenomenon. And I know they do have them in South America. Um, and I think I've even seen a Japanese one, yeah. um, but it's a very North American format. What is it about the eight track cassette that you find so endearing? Because it's really a creature of the past in so many ways, especially now. Yeah, it makes no sense, Julie. <laughs> it makes absolutely no sense. There's no no practical good reason uh, 
to uh, you know to embrace this format. You're right; it is primarily North American. There were eight tracks made in the UK. I have um, I have an eight track of Led Zeppelin Presence from the UK, but I think that they stopped making them by by at least by the late 70s they definitely didn't seem to last into the 80s and i've talked to other friends of mine that that are from the uk and they don't remember them or they remember seeing like maybe a beatles one here and there uh, um so they weren't that pop some there's some i've seen from uh, australia like i've seen you know early acdc ones those you know those like tnt and the early versions of the acdc right. albums i have seen eight tracks of those but yeah north america i don't know if it's because it was invented by learjet uh, it originally it was you know to play music on the on the planes I guess and, um, yeah why why eight tracks um, I think it just came down to well I guess I'll take it back to my very first eight track the Journey Escape one I, I liked the band uh, at that point I had the cassette and I had the vinyl of that album I didn't yet have the CD but I remember seeing that eight track for a dollar and. I remember eight tracks from when I was a kid. I was born in 74. So I remember being, you know, uh, with my cousins, like my older cousins, and they would have, I seem to remember things like the Cars and Blondie, you know, stuff like that. And then my, you know, my grandparents would listen to, you know, Charlie Pride and a lot of country. Um, so I do remember what they were, how they worked, which is most of the time not very well. Used to, most of the time you'd spend more time trying to pull the tape out of the player and, and wind it back up and hope that it plays. But, um, yeah, as the years went on, I kind of forgot about them. You'd see them at flea markets marked way down or, or you know, uh, yard sales and things like that. But when I found the Journey one, I thought, well, it's only a dollar. I should get this. And it was the novelty of putting the 8-track and the cassette and the record all together with the same cover art. And I recreate that in the book, actually. Um it was just the novelty of it. I just thought it was funny, and I thought it was funny how the song title there, the the order of the songs was all mixed up. Um, not all the albums were like that, but that one was definitely that. Just the track order was just mangled. Um, and it was years before I found any more by bands that I liked, and it was really really hard to find eight tracks. Like it was just you just didn't see them, or you saw you saw like country and disco, and you know you saw a lot of. Barry Manilow and, you know, Leif Garrett and, you know, you, you didn't see ACDC and Van Halen, and even though you just kind of knew that they were. It's just, I don't know, it's, you know, and I'm also talking pre-internet days. Pre-internet days had a lot to do with it, you know, you just, and I lived in a small town in eastern Canada and I didn't have access to, you know, uh, estate sales and, and things like that. So it started off very modestly. Um but the real turning point for me, uh, and, and the fascinating thing for me, is when I discovered a website uh, sometime around 1995, 1996. I mean, the, the internet was pretty pretty new to most people, it was certainly new to me. And I discovered this website called 8-Track Heaven. And it still exists in an archived form. Unfortunately, the uh, the lady that used to run it has long, uh, long passed on. But there is an archived version of it you can look at. And that's when um, I discovered that the record clubs, like Columbia House, RCA Music Service, those seem to be the main two, um, manufactured certain albums on 8-track, if people were members, all the way through 1988. And when I read that and I started to see some of the pictures, the first one I think I ever saw was George Harrison's Cloud Nine. 
which came out in 1987. And I remember thinking, I had no idea they were still making 8-tracks in 1987. Like, no idea. And when I say that, I'm talking about in the States. I'm not only talking about Canada anymore. Because in all of my research, it looks like Columbia House of Canada stopped making 8-tracks in 1984. Because I've yet to see a Canadian 8-track newer than that. I may yet see one. But um, but for the States, they just kept right on. And And so initially, I thought, okay, so... Uh, you know, anything that was really, really popular, they made on a track, um, country artists, you know, it's the cliche about the eight track player in the pickup, but yep. for whatever reason, if you were a country music fan, you were well served by these record clubs. You could, you didn't have to switch over to cassettes. If you liked George Strait or Alabama or Hank Williams Jr. or Reba McIntyre, all of the albums they put out in that time period came out on 8-track all the way up until 1988. It's pretty crazy. Dwight Yoakam, like artists, Randy Travis, artists that were brand new uh, on the scene still had their albums on 8-track. Not a lot of rock and definitely not a lot of um, hard rock and metal unless it was like a superstar band like Boston or Aerosmith or um, ACDC, Van Halen. So I thought, okay, there's a few of these. And uh, the first time that I saw an 8-track of an album I liked was I saw one for David Lee Roth, Edom, and Smile. And I thought, that is, that's amazing. And, and the thing that still enchants me to this day is, like, these should not be. Like, this is, these are out of time. They don't, these albums from 1985, 86, 87, they don't belong on 8-track. Yet here they are. They're this. They're this. They're th anomaly. This this complete anachronism in motion. Especially when you consider that as of 1986, Columbia House was also offering something these shiny little compact discs. So there was a brief period where people had four formats to choose from um, when they were ordering albums, and they had to make sure that they ticked off the right letter on their cards before they sent them in or else they'd get the wrong format. And I just, I couldn't believe it, 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 that some of the albums that I started to discover actually existed on 8-track. And that's really what, like, someone needs to put all of this information together, all of the ones that have been confirmed, sightings, not, not rumors of one, but actually seen. Someone needs to put these down and say, this is what came out on 8-track. And I guess it was going to have to be me. I, I was hoping someone else would do it. But, but that's that's it. that's really why I started collecting them. Just I like having the albums I love in as many formats as I can. But the only format I don't have right yet, anyway, I still haven't gotten any reel to reels. Those kind of fascinate me. But anytime I see one on on eBay, they're still over two hundred dollars, and I just can't justify it. But they just reel these. They come in this little box, a little bit bigger than a CD. You pick it up, and there's the reel, and you have to thread it onto the machine and play it like. That's like beyond eight tracks as far as rarity goes. That's like the, the final frontier of, of uh, music formats. But yeah, the eight tracks, the, the RCOs, I, I, I want to get as many of them as I can for the albums that I, that I like. Well, I'm shocked, you know, when I was going through the book and seeing Michael Jackson bad on exactly. the eight track. That, and I also had the that's amazing moment when I saw yep. Edelman smile. Um, as well, and, and naturally with my propensity towards Aerosmith these days, done with mirrors on yep. 8-track cassette. Just One of the most highly the desired mind. ones, because it's, you know, it wasn't a big album. I love the album, but it wasn't a big album. 
And yeah, it did come out on 8-Track. There aren't I've a lot of... I've seen one, and I didn't buy it. That's what bothers me the most now. Okay, I've got a good... It's very, very fitting. I hate bidding on eBay. Like, I hate it. You know, uh, I'm not... <laughs> like, some people just do it for fun. It's like, if I see something, and it doesn't have a buy it now on it, it's like... <sighs> I looked at eBay one night. I'm not even kidding. Animalize, eight track. Was a buy it now. Now it was like two hundred and fifty dollars. That seems like a lot of money, but how often have you seen Animalize on eight track? You just don't. It's the last known Kiss eight track. And I I thought, oh boy, that seems like a lot. I wish I had just pulled the trigger and gotten it. And that 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 one's haunted me to this day. Maybe someday I'll get it, but to this day it's uh, it's it's the one that got away. I think there's a couple of legitimate reasons to be interested in eight tracks, to be perfectly honest. Um, apart from your taste, your taste, your taste, and it doesn't matter a damn what anyone else thinks. Um, I liked how they reproduced the album cover artwork. And there have been quite a few, particularly from the Kiss perspective, where there are slight variations in the artwork that are used on an eight track. Dynasty is a good example uh, that the eight track uses the unairbrushed um, cover where you can see a little bit of the white straight jackets uh, or the white undershirts that they were wearing as part of that fo photo shoot. So I didn't that, know that actually. That becomes interesting. Yeah. Number two, are because of the tracking and the changes that you mentioned earlier, there are some alternative edits of songs. Uh, notably, again, uh, my experience with eight tracks comes from the Kiss area, um, from the Kiss catalog. So you get some that are extended, some that are shortened. Um, so it makes it an interesting thing rather than this is just a weird format to be um, collecting. There's actually a purpose to play them, record them, compare them with cassettes and obviously the LPs um, and, and the versions that were, were released because you do find differences. I remember when we moved to America, we got a stereo. It came with an eight track deck on it. And my abiding memory from the eight track was the click click of it switching the tracks yeah. and one of the benefits of the eight track was of course that you did not have to manually flip eject and flip it over in order to play the full i think they had up to 60 minutes um duration on an eight track yeah that seems about right i think after that they had to go to if, if it was like a double live album or something sometimes they'd have to go to two tapes yeah and then of course they also developed the quadraphonic yeah. which um, I still want to get those three Aerosmith quads on eight track yeah. and get yeah. those transferred to compare with the LP quadraphonics that uh, I have. So, so there are, for anyone thinking that this is just some insanely geeky niche, there, there is a purpose to it as well. Um, what do you, what of the titles that you are most shocked exists. You've mentioned Cloud Nine, but is there another one that you are absolutely amazed at? Just you can't understand why it exists and how that decision <laughs> was made. Well, um, it's uh, you know primarily I'm I'm looking for you know the bands that I'm into and 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 the ones that those are the ones that I really would like to get. Um, you know the uh, the last two known eight tracks to be manufactured um, by you know on a major label for not retail sale but for sale to the public both came out 
November 15th, 1988. They're both greatest hits albums. Uh, one's Fleetwood Mac's greatest hits. The other one's Journey's greatest hits. Those would be about the highest, um, especially Journey. I'm a huge Journey fan. I've listened to that greatest hits cassette so much. I think I wore out my cassette of it. It's just one of the most perfect greatest hits albums. It's one of my favorite, you know, it's, it's one of my all-time favorite car CDs. You can just put it on. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm, I'm so used to hearing the songs in that order. And the fact that I bought that cassette in, I don't know, April or March or April of 1989, if you'd have said to me then, you know, at age 14, you know, that's on 8-track. No, it's not. I would have been completely blown away. You know, even when I bought that Escape 8-track, I would have thought, okay, well, this must be the last uh, Journey album that ever came out on 8-track. But it's not. As a matter of fact, as good a time as any. I did uh, get out a few of my sort of cherished RCOs, but just to give you an idea, there's Raised on Radio in 1986 on 8-Track. And, um, yeah, the song titles are all messed up. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the, the now, there's a problem with 8-Tracks, like there were with cassettes in the 70s, in particular, and 80s, that there are a lot of counterfeits, and you cover some of that, yeah. uh, how to spot the difference between a counterfeit. That's actually something that's kept me off collecting them over the years, because I'd see all these different KISS ones with yeah. weird labels, um, and it was yeah, very you see hard those, to you, determine. You run away from those right away, those ones that you know have alternate covers on them. Those aren't real. Can't really. It's hard to see here, but there's a certain amount of natural wear that happens, uh, even if people kept really good shape. Like you'll notice that it's not completely smooth along here. There's a certain amount of I call it patina. You know, the years make their 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 presence known. You know, like there's some air bubbles there. I'm not saying that that's impossible to recreate, but it probably can be done. Also, if you see ones that that look right but they're too perfect. You might have you might be dealing with a counterfeit there too, um, you know. And, and if it doesn't have a serial number on it, doesn't have a lo like la the label logo on it, those are good ways to find out that you're not dealing with something legit. Um, yeah, and and also there are people that make their own because they love these albums. They want to put them on eight track, so they'll put newer albums on there, but they're not selling them. Right. Yeah, I've seen someone made a, a Motley Crue Too Fast for Love leather version yeah. one where yeah, Shout I, at the Devil was released yeah. on 8-track. Shout at the Devil is the only one for one. I, I saw that once to buy it now on eBay, but I think it was $600, and I said, uh, so I just can't do it. I can't do it. That's, it, you know, it, one of my, you know, it, I always think, wouldn't it be fun to stumble upon a flea market or a yard sale where somebody had been in Columbia house in the eighties or, or maybe it was maybe it's an estate sale or something, but basically where the seller doesn't realize what they have and they're selling them for a buck each. That's what I'm hoping. <laughs> yeah. That, that unfortunately because of the internet has taken a lot of the, the fun of the discovery or the hunt or the yeah. randomness of the kill um, out of the, and it drives, drives the prices up. I mean, you know, like I said, when I saw that Animalize A track, it was 200 plus. But the next time I see one, it could be twice that much. Because there's just so few of them. Like, and that's something that I, I was wondering about too. Like, you know, the most successful of albums, like you mentioned, Michael Jackson's Bad, as many millions as that would have sold in, you know, 1987, 1987 and beyond. You got to factor in, you know, most of those are probably cassettes. Uh, you'd have a lot of records. CDs were relatively just kind of catching on. 
Um, but a very small percentage of that would factor in as eight tracks. So even the biggest of albums would have small pressing. So imagine an album that didn't even certify gold. How many eight tracks of that would be kicking around? Yes, they were made, but how many were made? That's, you know, that's kind of a, that's, that's, that's the fascination of it for me. Yeah. And how many aren't in the landfill? I mean, you're still guaranteed if you go to a flea market or even secondhand record stores for there to be bins of eight tracks, but they're usually going to be the Lawrence Welk. You're guaranteed to find a copy of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Bound soundtrack or uh, Saturday Night Fever, along with a lot of those country acts. In my in my experience, as far as rock albums go, um, you know, some of the easier ones are the big, the big, big sellers. The first Boston album, you see that one a lot. Um, you know, I've seen a fair amount. I've seen Destroyer a few times out there. I've seen Dynasty a few times out there. But, you know, Toys in the Attic, I've seen, you know, quite a few copies of that out there. Batted to Hell, you know, albums that sold millions of copies. You you rarely, you know, you're not, you're not likely to see, you know... Uh, and I can't even think of a good example off the top of my head, but something a little bit more obscure. That's not to say it can't happen, but it's rare. Or, you know, I know that um, a few years ago, um, a couple of buddies of mine gifted me with uh, a really good copy of Rock and Roll Over uh, and um, Destroyer, which was better than the copy that I had. It was in better shape, so that replaced it. And also a copy of Alive 2, which was all funny because I had Alive 2. I only had one tape of it, though. I had a U.S. Columbia House version of it. I think I had tape two because it was on two tapes. The Canadian version was all on one tape. So if you hold that compared to another a regular album in your hands, you could feel the difference of the weight. There's like twice yeah. as much tape inside of it. Um, and uh, they said that, you know, basically they had a friend that worked at a thrift store that watches for this stuff. So sometimes... You know, when people drop things off, they don't even make it to the shelves. Yeah, no, no. That, I remember the Canadian also had the, uh, I think it was a single tape for double platinum as well. Same thing, yeah. I see, my double platinum is an RCA music service, but even the cassette, like I've got a Canadian cassette of double platinum. It's all on one tape, but the the U.S. one is on two, which is weird because those are short albums. So anyway, (laughs) those are very short albums, those early Kiss ones. So it's not like it was uh, putting much stress. You know, if you put too much, if you have a tape that's too long, you're you're putting an awful lot of pressure on it. And the same thing for eight tracks, probably even worse. But yeah, you know, there's so many things about them that don't make sense. The fact that they had to split the program, four programs, they had to make them all as equal a length as they could. So they had to split songs up and bring them back you know in the second half they had to mix the song titles or they had to mix the order of the songs up which if somebody's putting on a concept album well there goes the concept out the window um and you know they're just an an anachronism even when they were current they they i i remember more of you know them spilling out everywhere like tape spaghetti than i do actually listening to them and when you mentioned about cassettes like the advantage uh it's funny you, you mentioned it as an advantage where you didn't have to change the side. No, that's true, but you also couldn't rewind them. They only fast forwarded. And if you wanted to hear a particular song and you overshot, well, you got to go back and do it all over again. Um, yeah, and they had four programs and yeah, it didn't matter the nicest stereo. They all had that annoying clunk sound when they were changing programs. It was, um, you know, I do remember that from a kid, but I don't remember listening to albums you know, that I was particularly interested in. I was just fascinated by music in general from an early age. And 
you know, the idea of seeing like, okay, seeing something on record and then seeing a much smaller version of it. That's the other thing about eight tracks. If you like the artwork, well, guess what? You better have the cassette or the record to look at because if you're playing the eight track, half the artwork's in the machine. Yeah, and you also don't get liner notes, even though liner notes are now a lost art for digital releases, cassettes. Yeah. You had to have a young man's or a young person's eyesight in order to read those things. I hate I to say it, but I, I look inside my cassettes now and I'm like, how do, you know, the only reason I know what it says is because I know what it says. It's not yeah, because I can I can pick it out. It's I, just... I'm not embarrassed to admit that I have a scanner next to me and I actually scan them in so I can magnify. And it's not only to uh, to use them, it's to actually read them now. It's rather embarrassing. Yeah, the, yeah some, or, or if they have a bad com- color combination, like if something comes out with like a like a really light green against a black background, it disappears. You can't you can't read it. Yeah, and you're losing you're losing your back cover artwork and you know what made what makes collecting vinyl so much fun. What eight tracks had going for them was the portability. I think they were the first portable music medium that that really caught on with people. It took no time at all to throw an eight track deck in your car or your truck and you could listen to what you wanted exactly when you wanted. I think that's what won out against you know the niceties of reading all the liner notes and 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 the credits of who wrote all the songs and all of that and you know you do lose that but i don't know they're they're a real moment in time but when you get those later 80s albums it's it's a moment in time that you never thought possible it's just it's hard to explain and you know and i try to i try to explain it but you know sometimes things just kind of enchant you and this is one thing that that, that did it for me it was the idea of these these iconic, especially some of them iconic 80s albums existing in this, you know, presumably uh, done for medium that you thought would have petered out years ago. But then you find out, no, it had a little bit of that second life, like it was on life support for another six years or so, thanks to the record clubs. And which record clubs were they? Because, I mean, Columbia House would generally be the main one. Did, uh, what was the other one, RCA, BMG? Yeah, uh, and 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 it was real easy to tell them apart. I'll give you a, a couple of examples. So so basically, Columbia House was a division of CBS Records. So um, I'll show you a couple examples. So no matter what the originating label was, uh, when they came out on a track, they all looked like they would have been CBS artists. I'll show you here some examples. Um, how well these will show up. So those are four of my. So that's Night Ranger, Seven Wishes on top. Uh, Lover Boy, Loving Every Minute of It, Journey Raised on Radio, and Van Halen, 1984. So Night Ranger was on MCA. Uh, Journey and Lover Boy were on CBS. I guess that's kind of self-explanatory. Van Halen was on Warner Brothers. They're very generic looking. They all look the same. And they all, a lot of them had this blue box around them right. for for whatever reason. Um, the, you see, the 1984 one's pretty beaten up. But... So that's what the the Columbia House ones look like, and and I talk about this in the book how you can spot them. Now, for um, for other labels, I'll show you some other ones I've got here. These are all RCA Music Service ones, which later became BMG, which was a division of RCA Records. So that's Robert Plant, Shaken and Stirred, which is on Atlantic, Kansas Power, which is on MCA, and then 38 Special Strength and Numbers, which is on A and M. They all look the same. You know, they all look the same on, on the back, yep. you know, and uh, and the front of them all, they kind of, you know, very generic looking. So, and the other thing is that you didn't see RCA artists on Columbia House 
and you didn't see CBS artists on RCA Music Service, which is why, you know, based on, I think the great barometer is how many of these things you see used. I see I've got way more albums from B House that I found used in my collection than RCA. I just think they had more selection. They had more to choose from. You know, in the 80s, if you're not stalking CBS artists and you're trying to reach a wide amount of people, well, there goes Michael Jackson. You know, there goes Cindy Lauper. There goes Toto, Journey, Ario Speedwagon, um, Bruce Springsteen. I mean, you're losing a lot of big artists there. So I, I think that's why you see a lot more Columbia House. And I think they lasted longer than RCA Music Service did. I mean, I know a ton of people that were in Columbia House. I was in Columbia House in the 90s. Um, I don't know anybody that was ever in the BMG Music Service. No, I was in Columbia. No, actually, I think I was in the BMG. I was certainly in Columbia House, and I owed the money, and I came back to America uh, seven years later. And uh, lo and behold, within a few weeks, a collection agency came after me. You still owe Columbia House <laughs> for, for those uh, tapes back in uh, such and such a date. Please send us $23 to make it was this an go interesting, away. It was an interesting concept. I mean, I've heard it called the negative billing option, where they'd send you the selection of the month. And if you didn't send the card back in, they just they'd send you the, the the album, they'd bill you for it. But I was in Columbia House, and when I joined, I joined in about '93, and at that time I was replacing my cassettes with CDs, and they would have sales, so it was a great way for me to build up my CD collection. I've since bought most of the cassettes back again, anyway. But um, yeah, I'm sure they lost millions. They had to have because I don't know how many people personally. I would never do this myself. But I don't know how many people used to, you used to be able to get stuff sent general delivery. So they'd make up a name and they'd get their 12 CDs and ABC you. So yep. they, and the artists couldn't have made much money off of oh, these. The, the, the royalty rates on record club uh, issues written into contracts are a pittance. Yeah. So the labels weren't getting much out of these either. And then think of the losses. And I think what bothered me, it, I think it was BMG I was a member of first in the 80s when I was first getting into music. And you see that offer for one cent, you get 10 titles or 12 titles or whatever, however many titles. So I taped the penny onto the thing, did the checkbox, and I got in all these cassettes because that, that was uh, what I was into. Yeah. Uh, and then I looked at them and I was like, this looks nothing like the one in the store. Exactly. It felt cheap. Yeah. The the uh, the old RCA Music Service and Columbia's cassettes were ugly. Like they were just an ugly design. Um, I've got a few of them that I found used. Like they're just really ugly looking. I don't know how else to say it. Now, as the years went by, they started to look more like the retail counterparts, but they'd have, you know, the difference would be you'd see CRC on it or you'd see... Uh, a bunch of numbers followed by a letter in brackets, maybe. That'd be the only way you'd tell the difference. Records, you couldn't really tell. But yeah, and the cassettes looked really different. And the 8-tracks looked really different from the retail counterparts, too, which is how one of the ways you can tell them apart. And and that's one of the reasons why, you know, um, the lists of the 8-tracks that were only released for the record club starts in 1981. And it's a fairly short list. Because 1981 seems to be the year where there were eight tracks released that don't seem to have retail counterparts. And, you know, if people say, well, how do you know that? So you can tell by looking at them. It's very easy to tell if this was released for sale in a store or if this was only released to the record clubs. And sometimes it was both. But, you know, the ones that I have listed for 81, they're in there because, you know, to, to, to as of that printing, never seen um, 
a retail version of those particular albums, even though most uh, major label albums still came out on a track in 1982 as well. Anyway, but that was really like, you know, 83 seems to be when the door slammed shut. Um, I think there were only about maybe a half dozen titles that I know of for sure came out through retail in 1983, you know, um, and then it was kind of over. Yeah, and, and that's when the push towards uh, the, the standard cassette really does take off, 83-ish, and plus also the emergence of the UPC barcoding uh, system for in-stores. You know, that, that would have been a pain in the backside to integrate into the packaging of an 8-track cassette more so than the, the cassette, which had more printed paper yeah. Uh, packaging available to it than a, a generic sleeve that most eight tracks come in very few come in a custom one um and very few come with paper inserts as well especially the record club ones back when they were released as uh standard partners for uh record companies you know the one that pops to mind again kiss is yeah. the uh, originals came out on eight track and came with the sticker came with the book uh and all of that in a nice that's, slip case. Yeah, that's a, that's a U.S. version. I've seen the Canadian one too. I don't. I uh, this is all I've got. I I don't have the the packaging that came with it. But um, these are that's a retail uh, U.S. Casablanca issue of of the originals. Um, that's one of the rarer ones. You don't see that one that much. I've seen it go for a lot more because it's sealed. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and. Again, most KISS collectibles have a premium on them, uh, sometimes outweighing their true collectability. Especially, and of course, there's this. That bothers me. You know, when I was finishing Odyssey, <laughs> I wanted to get a copy of that. Oh, because man. I wanted, to, I wanted to get the... I wanted to get it digitized to do a comparison on the tracks. And uh, just wasn't able to. I kept getting outbid. I'm just looking at the... Uh... I think the song titles are actually in order on here. They are in they, order, yeah. but I did not trust that there weren't any edits made, um, especially at the time, you know, it's like getting alive too and uh, yeah. uh, other other uh, digitized forms of eight tracks and discovering those. So it was just, I wanted to do it as a matter of validation, but yeah. I kept, kept getting outbid and they were really dog eaten as well, which bothers me. Yeah, this one, I I got lucky on this one. It's in really, it's, it's really smooth. Like it doesn't have a lot of the... Um, but I will say that between program one and program two, dark light is broken up. So I don't know if like I, and this is one of the, the, the things I mentioned this book. I don't have a player for these things. I just collect them. Um, so I wouldn't have the ability to, to find out if it worked if I tried. And I know if I stuck that in a player, it would go brrr, and then I'd cry yeah, yeah, because I yeah, spent sure, a lot of money yeah. on this. <laughs> yes, you hear the click, click. It's very Neanderthal, yeah. the eight track, isn't it? The, the yeah. size of it and how it fits in the hand and how you jam it into that uh, deck. Um, and you and need then, a matchbox. After a while, you need a matchbox to keep it playing evenly, or you'll hear two songs at the same time. Yeah. Very, very strange format. Let me ask a final question before we wrap up. And, you know, what are some of the features in this book that you'd like to call to, to really bring to note uh, for people who may be interested in, in it after this conversation? Well, it's it's a book about about a lot of it is about music collecting in general. And, you know, if somebody's thinking, well, I've never owned an eight track in my life. I don't have any interest in them. It's not really about it is about that. But the year end lists listing the known RCOs. That's that was what I was originally thinking the focus of the book was going to be. That's actually sort of an addendum now. 
it's really about the stories. It's it's stories not just from me, but from friends of mine and contributors such as yourself talking about their own collecting experiences. Because I think we can all relate to the fact that you know now we live in a day and age where you know with eBay and Discogs and Amazon, you can pretty much find usually whatever you want right then, and you just got to wait for it to come in the mail. But there's nothing quite like that that excitement of finding something in the wild, especially you know finding something that maybe you didn't even know existed by by your favorite band. Um, I think a lot of these stories um, really bring that out and and really bring out the uniqueness of of every collector has the you know every collector has their focus. Um, this one just happens to be a very strange focus of mine to not. Somebody says, well, he collects eight tracks. Well, it's not just that. I, you know, I, I don't collect every eight track that I see. It has to be bands that I like. And then it, you know, if they've got whatever eight tracks they've got coming up into the 80s, I'd tr- like to try to find those too. And that's very, very specific. I knew when I went into this book that, and I say it's not just niche, it's niche within niche. And, uh, you know, the, the actual of the eight track I know has got a limited audience, but anyone who's ever loved collecting music and has got that thrill of, you know, maybe today, it's the record show today. What am I going to find? I think you'll find a little bit of yourself in the pages of this book. Yeah, one thing I've learned from this book is that the next time I am in that record store, uh, I'm, I'm not going to be buying the still sealed copy of what was it, Hugh Masekela or, um, um, or any of those. I, but I am going to pay a little bit more attention to some of those titles to see if that Done With Mirrors crops up for me. And then, of course, I'll have to find someone who's got a player so I can get it digitized as well. Uh, one last section that I like to draw attention to is your fantasy section. Yes, I found that a, a particularly enjoyable part. Hysteria would be hysterical on yeah. on a track. Well, yeah, there is a section at the end, uh, towards the end of the book, where I talk about eight tracks or albums uh, that came out within the the years that the record clubs were still making eight tracks. But to this date, we don't seem to have. No one seems to have seen a version of it. So. Pyromania, um, this is a Columbia House version of Pyromania. This is actually one of the very last uh, albums to come out on retail. Uh, it actually came out in, in the States on, on Mercury. It would look more like this Elder. Not exactly, because the Elder's kind of uh, personalized, but it would have this you know, beige-colored uh, beige tape, and uh, you know, it would have the manufactured by Polygram Records on it, and... Um, so yeah, it would be real easy to tell that it, it's different from from this copy. I'm perfectly happy with this copy. But yeah, Hysteria came out in August of 1987, and as we know, they were still making eight tracks then. So um, I've got five examples, and I list the reasons why it could exist, and then the reasons why it probably doesn't exist. It was just a little fun, little way for me to just put some things out there for people to think about. I mean, you know, I only have one eight track from 1987 and it's this, it's Fleetwood Mac Tango in the Night, which is still pretty mind blowing. That still boggles the mind. Yeah. Great album as well. Yeah. And I also, well, the, I only have one that's newer and it's this one. Um, this came out in 2009, Cheap Trick, the latest. There's actually quite an extensive story uh, in the book with uh, a lady named Kate Gibson who runs Kate's Track Shack, which is a great uh, resource uh, online, and they have a store. I think it's in I think it's in Texas. I could be wrong, um, but um, yeah, she she was a great interview with, and there's a story in there about uh, meeting Rick Nielsen and all of that. So if you're a Cheap Trick fan, there's something in there for you too. And you know, um, 
And yeah, so I, I've got five examples of eight tracks that, that I wonder why they didn't come out. And then there's always that remote chance that someday we'll find out, well, hey, they actually did. They'd be rare as hen's teeth. Um, you know, and, and another example, I'll only give one more example, but um, another example I listed was Asylum. Because as I already said, Animalize is the last known Kiss 8 track. But Asylum came out, and, and, and a lot of times I judge it by the company that they keep, like uh, other 8-tracks that came out around the same time. Um, and even though there's nothing in common musically, Power Windows by Rush came out in 1985, October, November, around that time. And in the States, it was on Mercury Records, as were Kiss. So if Power Windows came out on 8-track, why didn't Asylum? You know, it, 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 it's kind of one of those cases where that's one that could very likely exist but i i think with kiss collectors and the way everybody networks i think we'd know by now but maybe not um and this is to give you an example of what a canadian eight track looks like this is a pretty rare one this is rush grace under pressure and this is a canadian uh version on anthem records very very rare like i said 1984 seems to be the cutoff in canada for making those but um uh yeah like i said the music collector in all of us I think that you'll recognize, you know, if you read a passage, you go, oh, yeah, that sounds like something that happened to me. Um, there's one story that a good friend of mine who we've been on many a music excursion in, you know, dingy places trying to find some cool stuff. We actually went to this guy's house who said he had a bag of eight tracks and I would never have gone by myself. Um, and that, that's, that made for a funny story. And then, of course, there was the, the, the famous garbage bag story where um, friend, this same friend of mine worked at a bottle exchange and somebody you know had a pickup truck full of empty beer bottles but there were these garbage bags on there too one of them spilled out uh, it was full of eight tracks and the first one that my friend chad saw was van halen too there it was and he very very astutely said um what are you doing with that bag of eight tracks he said oh i was just taking them to the dump this is about 1993. he said uh can i have those he's well, yeah here and we had a ball going through those and uh, I, I, I list the other ones that we found that night. That was a that was a fun night. That's wild. So yeah, I, I hope it appeals. To, you know, it should appeal to the collector and everyone. It's gorgeously laid out. It's a beautiful book. Uh, and I've always said, you know, and, and and I say this about myself, like my loved ones, the people that know me the best, they don't buy me any music stuff because they don't know what I want. It's very specific. It's rare. And if I want something, I've probably already got it. But I've always said, this is the type of book you buy for a picky music collector. Uh, it's the, it's the book they didn't know they wanted. So, um, you know, I know people have gifted them too. I know people have bought two copies, one for themselves, one for a gift. So yeah, uh, you know, it's just, um, it, it's a coffee table book. It's, it's not necessarily a book that you pick up and read, you know, front to back, you can if you want, but it's you can kind of pick it up anywhere and just start reading a story or, you know, and, and, and I've also referred to it as a good bathroom reader, and that's not a derogatory term. There's a lot. Those are the books that you return to time and time again. And, you know, it, it's it's like that, too. It's it's just a carrier. It's just a fun book. It's an easy read. And it's it's just beautifully, beautifully designed. And, um, you know, I'm proud to have my name on it. Fantastic. Tim Darling. Thank you for joining me for Unspooled. Why don't you give uh, yourself one more shout out of where people can find you if they're interested in the book or your Tim's Vinyl Confessions podcast. Well, I'm on YouTube, Tim's Vinyl Confessions. I put a new episode out every week. And uh, if you're interested in buying Unspooled, uh, send me an email, timsvinylconfessions at gmail.com. That's the quickest way. Uh, PayPal is basically... Uh, 
you know, my main method of accepting payment. Um, and, uh, or unless you're in Canada, which you can e-transfer, but you know, PayPal works just fine. And, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for everybody that's bought the book so far. And, uh, and thanks Julian for having me on here. Oh, no problem at all, Tim. It's great to meet you. And it was, you know, again, I was very honored to be invited to contribute to this. It's a beautiful 193 page full color book and it's available now and there's limited quantities left. Tim Darling, thank you for joining us on the Look It's Rock and Roll podcast. I wish you the best with this project and who knows what it leads to next in your collecting life. Thank you. Thank you for watching or listening to this episode. Be sure to subscribe to us, like us, or even leave us a review. You can find us and join the conversation on Facebook. <laughs>